Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop, and this episode of the podcast is going to be all about altitude, how altitude affects the body, and how to train for races at altitude. One of the most common questions I get on a weekly basis is how someone living at sea level can train for an event at altitude. I get it. Not everybody has the luxury to live and train in the mountains, and there's a big intimidation factor for these athletes. So on the podcast today, to help solve this riddle, I have Robert Mazio, PhD. Robert is one of the most respected physiologists in the world today and has conducted some of the most important research in high altitude physiology that coaches and physiologists alike can lean on to inform training for athletes. Professor Mazio also has an absolutely incredible free online course that anyone can attend. And I actually didn't know this before we got on the podcast. So I actually went through some of the sections and I was blown away at the content. I'm going to take the entire course once I can get around to it. For any coaches or athletes who do not have a traditional exercise science background and you want to better inform your training, I would highly encourage you to check this content out and the link is in the show notes. And we begin our conversation a little bit about discussing this particular endeavor. Here we go. Here's my conversation with Robert Mazio all about altitude. I've got a massive open online course on Coursera on the science of exercise. Oh, cool. And that was definitely watered down for the layperson. And and to date, there's over 700,000 visitors on it. It's a free course. Wow, too. that's incredible. Will you send me the link to that afterwards? Because I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, sure. I'll send you the link to that. Absolutely. And anybody can join? Anyone can do it. And it's free. So uh, so there's, it's... it's uh, separated into four modules. The first module is on exercise energetics. So we talk about, you know, carbohydrate, fat, protein, metabolism, ATP. The second uh, module is on physiological systems, cardiovascular system, respiratory system, endocrine system, immune system. The third module is on basically performance. We talk about what causes fatigue, muscle soreness, performance enhancing drugs. And the fourth module is on health. We talk about exercise on lowering risk factors for heart disease, diabetes, certain types of cancers, obesity, uh, Alzheimer's, all that. And is it, a, is it like a self-paced curriculum? Yes. Yes, it is. Oh, wow. I might send my coaches to that now that I know about it. Seriously. Like, <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've gotten a lot of coaches, yeah. uh, physical therapists, personal trainers that take this course, but I was surprised that uh, people are taking it from over 500 different countries in, in places where I didn't even think they had the internet, like uh, Libya wow. and... Yeah, I'm sure as you can imagine, when we hire our, when we hire new coaches, they come from a variety of different backgrounds, right? I mean, it's, a, it's an interdisciplinary type of profession. And sometimes they have proper exercise physiology backgrounds and sometimes they don't. And sometimes there's kind of like... And I came into coaching this way as well, where it was kind of a hodgepodge of things in between. And we're always searching for ways to get everybody to start with the same playbook, right? Once we bring them in and then we put our own continuing education kind of on top of that. So this is, this would probably be a pretty good resource. Now this would be a perfect resource for that. Yeah. All right. I appreciate it. Um, but we're going to talk about altitude. Yes, we are. And I know, and I know you love this. I got the chance to run around my house this morning and look at Pike's peak, which you're quite familiar <laughs> with. 
Uh, I've been up there many times. I've I've driven up the Pikes Peak Road. I can't tell you how many times. Have you been up there since it's been paved? Uh, I haven't been up there. No, not since not since the last part's been paved. No, it's um there. So they're redoing the Summit House right now. Um, to the tune of I think it's a fifty million dollar project. Wow. Um, all all funded by toll road money and by uh, donations, so no tax money going into it. And it is a huge, 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 huge project. And I think that expanding or make giving a more permanent home to the lab that you worked out of is part is kind of part of that whole endeavor. The uh. You know the army owns that the research facility up there. Yeah, and uh, they've conducted. You know, every time we do a study up there, as I told you, we've done. I've been a uh, part of four studies at Pikes Peak. We always give the army a piece of the action so that they can get some publications out of it. Well, the military has always been quite good at producing research with arduous conditions, albeit altitude or heat or sleep deprivation or things like that. So altitude folds in, right, folds in really well there. Yeah, our studies were funded by the Department of Defense, you know, because yeah. they were interested on how uh, soldiers would perform at altitudes like in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, we, we owe a lot of what we know, as, as you're aware, uh, we know, owe a lot of what we know about altitude research kind of to to, to two really uh, prominent figures. The first one is being the U.S. military who likes to study their soldiers in these adverse conditions. But the second one is the Mexico City Olympics, right? We can yes. trace all of this altitude research back to the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. And at that time, competing in that type of, in that type of environment, that type of altitude was kind of a relatively – it was an unknown quantity at that time. The athletes and the coaches and the physiologists that were going into that situation, they really kind of didn't know what to expect. And they had a couple of lead up, like the Pan American Games and things like that were uh, lead ups in, into that event. And they started getting all of these anecdotal reports back from the athletes that the, that the distance events in particular were much harder and the sprints and the jumps, everybody was doing a whole lot better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So most of the ex-phys textbooks these days compare the uh, 68 uh, Mexico city Olympics with the 64 Tokyo Olympics. When they look at performance times in short events versus more long distance events. And so, it, so with this kind of like long history, there's been, there is continually a number of athletes kind of all across the world and in particular with, with in the ultra marathon discipline that are always looking to gain an edge when they go up to altitude. And ultra marathon racing has this really unique proposition where some of the races are at extreme altitudes and they're very attractive to that group, to that audience because of the altitude yeah. in, in part. You've got races like hard rock, which has an average elevation of 11,000 feet. You've got Leadville, which starts in Leadville, Colorado, which is at 10,200 feet and on and on and on and on. And we're faced with this kind of like similar prospect every year with athletes where they're coming from sea level. Usually it's the Midwest or the East coast and they complain about the client, the lack of climbing that they have. And they're going to these altitude environments and they want to be proficient, right. At, at, at exercising, at performing at that, uh, at that, at those altitudes, we're going to get to the answer or hopefully close to some answers to that question a little bit later. But I think like to start out with, we need to go over like fundamentally what happens acutely and chronically 
when an athlete goes up to an altitude, we'll, we'll use a moderate altitude, anywhere between 5,000 and 8,000 feet for our North American audience, we'll, we'll work in the U.S. system. So can you give us a broad overview first of what happens when athletes go to those altitudes? Yeah. So the first thing, you know, just to set the background for your listeners is I want to talk about the principle of homeostasis. Uh, And so basically what that principle is, it's the uh, desire of the body to tightly regulate a number of key physiologic and biochemical factors in the internal milieu of the cells and tissues to optimize their functioning and survival. So the body likes to tightly regulate a bunch of key factors to make sure the cells are under their optimal conditions and they function uh, properly. And so so these are things like, for example, body temperature. So as you know, if you get hot, you start sweating. That's a reaction to try to cool your body down. Um, If you're exercising, your blood glucose levels can drop. So we need to regulate blood glucose by mobilizing glucose from the liver. Um, Oxygen is another factor. So anytime there's a disruption in homeostasis, uh, the body has to kick in its regulatory mechanisms to try to offset and adjust for these disruptions. Now, both exercise and ascent to altitude are clear stressors that disrupt homeostasis. Even at sea level, an acute bout of exercise and a strenuous exercise is probably the most uh, significant disruptor to homeostasis short of death. I mean, you're doing intense exercise, your blood pH can change, your temperature's changing, your oxygen levels and demand for oxygen's changing. Your body needs to regulate all these things. And the way it regulates it, it has these various sensors that help respond to this disruption in homeostasis. The major ones are the central nervous system. And specifically during exercise, we're talking about the autonomic nervous system, which consists of the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. But what it does is when you start to exercise and your muscles start to use more oxygen to supply adenosine triphosphate for fuel, uh, you need to get more oxygen delivered to the exercising muscles. And the way it does that is, you know, it turns on the cardiovascular system. You increase uh, your heart rate, you increase your stroke volume. That's all designed to increase your cardiac output and to increase oxygen delivery to the muscles. You increase your ventilation, so your respiratory rate goes up to try to get more oxygen from the environmental air into your lungs to keep your hemoglobin saturated with oxygen. Blood flow to the exercising muscles uh, increases, the muscles vasodilate. All that kind of uh, adjustments to disruption and homeostasis induced by exercise are regulated by both the central nervous system and key hormones. You get a the uh, catecholamines play a big role. You will, people talk about their adrenaline. So the adrenal glands, when the body gets stressed, you, you, see, you see a response to your adrenal glands, and it releases epinephrine or adrenaline. And that helps with controlling the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, blood flow to the exercising muscles. It also is involved in fuel regulation. So now you go to altitude, and you have another stressor. You have an environmental stressor. Exercise is a physical stressor. You go to altitude, now you have an environmental stressor, and that's hypoxia. So the basic uh, physiology is here is you go to higher altitudes, the barometric pressure goes down, and as per Boyle's law, when the pressure goes down, the volume of a gas expands. 
So the gas expands at higher altitudes. That means there's less oxygen per liter of air at higher altitudes. So the O2 density basically is going down. And that, of course, is going to disrupt homeostasis. And the body, even at rest, when you go from sea level to high altitude, the body's going to have to make adjustments to that disruption in homeostasis because your arterial partial pressure of oxygen in your arterial network is going to be well below normal at sea level, depending upon what altitude you're at. And then when you have exercise at altitude, you have a combination of stressors that the body needs to adjust to, which it can acutely. So when you exercise, when you first arrive at a high altitude, and then of course the body makes long-term adaptations. So this is basically the underlying mechanism for the overload principle and training adaptations or even acclimatization. If you go out and exercise five, six days a week and you do that um, for several months, when you repeatedly stress the body, it will make long-term adaptations. These are the training adaptations. For the, for the cardiovascular system, it's gonna be an increase in stroke volume, increase in my, my, uh, maximal cardiac output, increase in your VO2 max, your, your, the volume of oxygen at maximal exercise. Your body's gonna make these training adaptations. When you go to altitude, you're gonna have acute stressors, and, the, and we can talk about what those responses are to the, to the, to the body. And then if you stay at altitude, you're gonna to start to acclimatize. It's gonna make these training adaptations, so to speak, that allow you to improve both oxygen delivery and utilization by muscles, both at rest and during exercise. So when you first go to altitude, the problem clearly is hypoxia. So a below normal level of oxygen in the environmental air, and eventually that translates into a lower partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, Hemoglobin is less saturated, less oxygen getting to tissues. I love the fact that you're equating hypoxia or altitude exposure to exercise in terms of the stress that it puts on the body and the subsequent adaptations that the body tries to make in order to overcome that stress. Yes, and it's, it's, it's a very a good analogy because again, the underlying theme for both of them is disruption and homeostasis that the body needs to make an adjustment to. And again, if it's subjected to this for a long period of time, uh, we're going to see adaptations taking place in the body, both as a result of exercise training at sea level or acclimatization at altitude. So when you go ahead. Oh, no, what, what I was going to say is, is my, my point with that is, is that a lot of times we look at, and we being the coaching community, athletic community, we look at altitude interventions through the lens of how do I get exposure to this altitude? But if you realize that exercise exposure is making a lot of the same adaptations that you would want if you're going to a high altitude type of environment, you can say, okay, well, and we're going to kind of come back to this later, I'm sure. You can say, well, training might be your first intervention to overcome whatever's going on at altitude. And then you might look at an altitude, a specific type of altitude intervention after that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. So when you first go to altitude, you know, th this hypoxia, this low partial pressure of oxygen in the blood is sensed by the body. So one of the immediate adjustments it makes is you increase both your resting and submaximal heart rate. 
That's designed to increase your cardiac output and uh, improve oxygen delivery to all tissues, including skeletal muscle. So you get an increase in heart rate, both at rest and during exercise. You also get an increase in ventilation. Your respiratory rate goes up. That's designed to try to get more oxygen into the lungs and to keep the hemoglobin as highly saturated as is possible at that partial pressure of oxygen. Now, not surprisingly, because of the hypoxia, your VO2 max, your maximal oxygen consumption, decreases at altitude, and that decreases dependent upon what altitude you're at. Another thing that happens at altitude is for a given submaximal exercise, you have a greater production of lactate, lactic acid and lactate. And that has implications to, uh, with regard to acid-base status and ensuing fatigue at altitude as well. So the, there don't appear to be any key biochemical adjustments that occur with acute exposure to high altitudes, such as increasing uh, red blood cell number, increasing mitochondrial oxidative capacity, or air, even increasing capillary density. Those all happen long-term, but the, the immediate responses are to try to improve oxygen delivery as best you can in response to this disruption in homeostasis caused by this hypoxia. And one of the interesting features of that is that everybody will recognize it's harder for me to exercise at altitude. If we just normalize the situation, we have somebody running eight minute pace at sea level. We all of a sudden teleport them to 14,000 feet on the top of Pikes Peak and we have them run eight minute pace up there. That's going to be a really hard adjustment. Yet the actual amount of oxygen that they're consuming in both of those situations is going to be remarkably similar it just feels harder because their VO2 max has been reduced by so much. And therefore the percentage of VO2 max that they're actually working out at or, or exercising at is a greater percentage of VO2 max at the in the altitude condition as, as compared to the sea level condition. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. It's, it comes back to uh, comparing an absolute workload at sea level and altitude to the relative workload. And that's very that's a very important point because the higher the relative workload. So if you're running at that eight minute pace at sea level, let's say that you're working at 70% of your max VO2. And you now you're at some altitude where that same pace is going to require you to work closer to 90%. That higher relative workload, it's the same absolute workload, but that higher relative workload creates even a bigger disruption on homeostasis. The higher the relative workload, the greater disruption in homeostasis, and the greater the need for the body to make adaptations to compensate for that stress. So that's an extremely important point, the difference between the absolute and relative workloads when you're talking about comparisons with sea level and altitude. Yeah, and I also think understanding that has a little bit of influence on some of the interventions that you might actually introduce to the athlete. Like if you understand actually what's going on, it's not actually an, an economy impairment. It's a maximum, it's a maximum aerobic output impairment, essentially. Right. You can look at the, you can look at kind of solving the problem differently, which I think we'll get into in a little bit, but before we get too far down the weeds with the actual answer, which everybody wants, <laughs> everybody <laughs> just wants the answer. Let's kind of keep going through this background, right? So we talked a little bit about acute responses. What about the chronic adaptations? Somebody that's out altitude for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, what is going on there for the body to adjust? Yeah, so, you know, the, the key one that everyone always points to as, as a result of the hypoxia, your kidneys start to release erythropoietin, EPO, which has 
also been used by athletes such as athletes in the Tour de France to blood dope. It's a it's a chemical way to blood dope as opposed to the autologous way of the classic blood doping when you reinfuse yourself with your own red blood cells. So you get this erythropoietin response uh, within 72 hours of arrival to altitude, which can peak around two weeks, depending upon the altitude and the person, as we'll discuss later, there's people that get classified as responders and those as non-responders that the altitude acclimatization process. But the major adaptation there is to increase erythropoietin, EPO. And what it does is it stimulates the bone marrow to make more red blood cells. So what you're doing is you're trying to increase your hemoglobin concentration, which is the carrier of oxygen in the blood. Uh, Only about 1.5% of oxygen is physically diffused in the plasma. The rest of it's carried in hemoglobin, the other 98.5%. So the more hemoglobin you have, uh, the more oxygen you have and you can carry. So obviously increasing your red blood cell number is one way to increase your oxygen carrying capacity. Another thing that the body does is it you urinate more at altitude to try to decrease your plasma volume to concentrate the red blood cells you already do have. And again, that's another technique that the body uses to adapt to hypoxia to concentrate the red blood cells you already have. And so both of those are designed to increase the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood so you can deliver more oxygen to the tissues. But other long-term adaptations, the body starts to excrete bicarbonate to get rid of the bicarbonate. That helps with acid-base balance. So one of the problems is that that when you go to altitude, as I said before, your ventilation goes up. You start breathing more to get more oxygen into the lungs and into your your, uh, red blood cells. But you're not producing any more carbon dioxide if you're just sitting there at rest. So your ventilation goes up, you start lowering your CO2 levels. Like if you were to sit there right now and hyperventilate, your CO2 levels would drop and your blood actually becomes more alkalinic. That's one of the factors that can contribute to acute mountain sickness along with dehydration. So one of the ways the body adapts is it gets rid of bicarbonate. It's one of the uh, chemicals that's involved in the buffering capacity to help you have this ventilatory adaptation to acclimatization. Another thing that happens at altitude is so we're talking about oxygen delivery. We try to get more efficient at oxygen utilization. So we do see an increase in capillary density and skeletal muscle. So basically to increase local blood flow in the delivery of oxygen And again, depending upon the altitude, we see an increase in mitochondrial concentration, the actual organelle designed to utilize the oxygen that's going to produce the ATP for muscle contraction. So those are some long-term adaptations that, you know, that are attractive to athletes because if you can increase your mitochondrial oxidative capacity, you can increase your oxygen delivery, you can increase both your VO2 max and hopefully uh, your performance. There are so many threads that I want to pull on with that. <laughs> you pulled you you pulled up five or six different adaptations, all of which we could do a three hour podcast on. But one of the key ones that a lot of the listeners will be familiar with is this concept of responders versus non-responders, which yes. is kind of gotten haphazardly thrown around in the lay literature. Um, that's my that's my opinion. Let me just state that from the onset that haphazard nature and. My my experience with this is that 
these altitude interventions have gone from these, especially in high performance scenarios, have gone from nearly de facto, meaning everybody did them in the 90s and the 2000s. It was just something that happened. Everybody went to an altitude camp or is trying to get an altitude tent or something. To now we look at it in a, through a much more selective lens that is tailored around the situation and the athlete individually. So not so much a responder versus a non-responder, but what does the situation act actually dictate? Will this athlete create the adaptations that we actually want? I was wondering if maybe you could expand on this concept of responders versus non-responders, or maybe people who respond individually to these types of exposures. Yeah. So when it comes to altitude, you know, there are, there is a tremendous amount of variability as to these uh, adaptations that I just listed. And there's been a number of explanations for it. You know, one is that the dose, you know, uh, what altitude you're at is going to play a role. The other one is how long you're at that altitude is going to play a role. Another one is what's your fitness status before you go through the altitude acclimatization process? You know, people that lower fitness have a wider range for improvement that really high class elite athletes do. And then, of course, there's always the genetic factor. Even at sea level, you take two people, the same sex, the same age, the same VO2 max, you give them the exact same training stimulus. They're both, we know they're both going to improve, but one may improve more than the other. So there's the, uh, Genetic factor, the individual variability principle basically is what's coming into play there. And then, of course, for the athletes, you know, as you're talking about customizing it for an individual, it, it depends what their event is as well. You know, are they mar ultra marathon runners? Are they milers? Uh, all these things come into play. You know, the early studies on the Live High, Train Low by Ben Levine were done on people running uh, relatively short races, you know. Uh, 3,000, 5,000 meters. So it, it, all those factors come into play, and that explains why there could be a, a wide variability in the response to altitude and altitude training. Yeah, and the so first off, there's a little bit of a personal connection there. Ben did some uh, physiological testing on me when I was a teenager, way, way, way back in the days, and it was right around the time when he was doing a lot of this, a lot of this research. Um, so I, I know, I know him through that, and I've had many conversations about that early research with him. Um, the interesting thing with the altitude interventions, though, as it relates to to performance, is that it's one of a handful of interventions where you can get a negative or a maladaptation. You can get a negative response or a maladaptation, which basically unwinds all of the hard work that the <laughs> athlete has actually done. And what we're starting to learn a little bit more about in terms of the individual response, it's not that difficult to actually do. You could put somebody in an altitude tent, you can send them out to an altitude camp and they come back worse than they were when you sent them up there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's a number of reasons for that. So um, on these Pikes Peak studies, we had a nutritionist that was painfully making sure that these athletes, I mean, these, these subjects stayed in energy balance. So one of the things that can happen is uh, you lose your appetite when you go to altitude initially. And that's there's a number of factors related to that, including increased sympathetic nerve activity. Uh, also, you increase your resting metabolic rate. So a lot of these studies done uh, by folks in, in Copenhagen 
they reported when they did these altitude training studies that their uh, subjects lost about five to 10 pounds of muscle mass. So they weren't staying in energy balance. Now, the studies at Pikes Peak, we had to be force fed these folks so that they stayed in energy balance and maintain their muscle mass. So one, you can lose your muscle mass and that's obviously gonna have a negative effect. Two, as you well know, you can't train at the same at absolute intensity that you're gonna compete at at sea level at altitude. So you could have what they call, and I do the quote, air quotes, detraining effect, because you're not training at the same absolute intensity at altitude because, you know, it's a higher relative workload and you can't sustain that for a prolonged period of time. And thus, the live high, train low strategy comes about. So let's get into those. There have been any number of different altitude strategies. And for those of you that aren't looking at the YouTube video of this, I am just laughing my face off right now because I'm trying to, I'm going to try to recollect by just off of memory of how many different altitude interventions that I've seen over the years. And they seem to get every single year more and more convoluted. But yes. one of the one of the reasons that they have become so convoluted is because of this detraining aspect. Because we know that we can't produce the same power, we can't run at the at the same speed at altitude as we can at sea level. And there's been this attempt to try to separate where you do your resting essentially, and then where you do your working. You want to rest when it's high, and then work when it's low. Not that that's the perfect answer, but but that is the vein that has created all of these different permeations of live high, train low, live high, train high, use this intermittent hypoxic exposure and things like that. So with that as a little bit of a backdrop, we've what's kind of come out of the woodworks are four different uh, protocols, essentially, or four, di- four different strategies, the four, four, four strategies of which there are probably 10 different iterations of that I've seen <laughs> coaches and practitioners develop. Fair statement, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely a fair statement. Okay. So the first one is a live high, train high strategy. You're going to go out to Leadville, Colorado and train out on the Leadville course if you're training for the Leadville Trail 100. Second would be a live high, train low strategy which is more classically adopted in like the Olympic distance events. So here in Colorado Springs, they go out and they live at Woodland Park, which is at like 8,300 feet. And then they come down to Colorado Springs or sometimes even Pueblo, which is like an hour and a half drive. (laughs) (laughs) Colorado Springs is at 6,300 feet and then Pueblo is at like 5,000 feet or something like that. So they're training at a lower elevation as compared to where they're sleeping. And the same strategy would be if you used a hypoxic tent. Then you have intermittent hypoxic training which is training super high using a mask. So sometimes 15,000 feet, sometimes 20,000 feet. I've seen that uh, protocol as well. And the second, and then the last one would be intermittent hypoxic exposure, which is just passive exposure to an extremely high altitude for relatively short periods of time. And then somehow that shock to the system provides the catalyst for all of these adaptations that we were speaking about earlier. That's a mouthful. So you're the expert here. You get to pick on which one of these we go through first and how important or relevant it actually might be for athletes. Yeah. So the first thing is, are you taking part of any of these protocols for performance at altitude or are you trying to do for performance at sea level? So the live high, train low paradigm is designed to help your sea level performance. 
it's not really going to help with your altitude performance. Well, it is because you're going to, in, in one respect, because if you're living high, you're going to have all those adaptations associated with high altitude. Uh, but living high, training high, that's going to help if you're going to be performing at altitude. Uh, that paradigm is is probably the best way to go for performance at altitude, but it's not going to help you with sea level. So um, those are things that have to be kept in mind when you're talking about which paradigm is best suited for the athlete. Is it going to be performance at sea level or performance at altitude? And then the intermittent hypoxia, I just saw another study that came out just recently where they wanted to do the live high, train low, but then they wanted they, they added a little I for intermittent hypoxia training for about three hours, three times a week. So uh, like you said, they're coming out with all these different iterations of the original design that basically make you start scratching your head. But again, getting back to your question for sea level performance, I think uh, it seems pretty evident that the live high train low, if you happen to be a, a high responder is potentially the way to go to improve sea level performance. If you're going to compete in the Leadville 100, uh, Again, living high, training low will at least give you the basic acclimatization while you're at, let's say, altitude for 22 hours per day. But you're probably better off training at the higher altitude if you're going to be competing at the higher altitude so your body gets adjusted to that type of physiological stress. And in that case, the penalty that you pay for not being able to exercise at sea level is negated by the competition environment, right? Because the competition environment is at a higher altitude, lower power output, lower speeds anyway. Is that what you're saying, essentially? Yes, but you have to get it used to that. I think you need to adapt to that before the, before the actual race. And so let's put ourselves in the position of... A, of a stereotypical athlete that I probably see a hundred or 200 times a year. We've been using Leadville as an example. So we're going to continue with that. It's an athlete that's coming up to the Leadville trail 100. That's from Nebraska or from Texas or from Florida or some other, you know, uh, some, some other location where they don't have exposure to this altitude. Would an intervention where they lived high and train high, and this is what a lot of them try to do, they go up to Leadville, they do a camp up there, they might participate in, you know, some of the tune-up races that are in that location. How would athletes go about being best served to take advantage of those types of opportunity? And how can they avoid some of like the deleterious things that might happen because of that exposure? Yeah, so for, uh, for the folks that are at sea level, um, if if they're one of the things they can do is they can just come out to Leadville like a week to ten days ahead of time, and it, and basically use it as a base camp type of scenario like mountaineers do before they go to try to summit Everest. Uh, if they're like in Nebraska and they don't have access to hypobaric chambers or wearing a mask with a reduced uh, oxygen levels, uh, they really are going to be at a disadvantage unless they do come out early and try to acclimatize. Uh, again, it doesn't take, a, you know, you don't have to be here a month is what I'm saying. A yeah. week ahead of time, you start to see the changes in the acclimatization variables such as EPO that I talked about earlier. And so I think that's their best route to go. You know, geographically, if they don't have access to uh, high altitude where they can spend some time and acclimatize and train, 
then they're and they don't have access to these hyperbaric chambers. And I think their best uh, avenue to pursue is just coming out early and try to acclimatize prior to the race. Huh. So you brought up something that I love and I get a kick out of is for years, we've heard this dogmatic point of view uh, with athletes that are coming from sea level and they're going to an altitude, a race at altitude that they need, that they need to, I'm emphasizing that word intentionally. They need to, get to the race within 24 hours of the race starting or three weeks before the race. Yeah, yeah. And I've always found this recommendation hilarious because anybody who's not an elite athlete has an extremely problematic time actually doing that. They can't carve a month out of their life to go live in Leadville, Colorado to, in order to acclimatize. But you, you actually made this really uh, interesting point where said, listen, if you get there a week to 10 days, you're probably b- going to be okay. And that, that speaks to what I want to get into now. It's not a light switch that happens. These are all biological adaptations that happen over time courses and they happen incrementally as well. Yes, they happen gradually. And again, the extent to which they happen is going to be dependent upon the altitude and uh, your genetic makeup, what type of responder you are. Now, is in the in the case of a camp, is there such a thing as a repeated bout effect for altitude? Meaning, you come up to altitude once for two weeks, three weeks, or whatever. Do you get better, or do you acclimatize quicker after subsequent bouts? Why during that two week camp? No, afterwards. So you go up to altitude for a couple of weeks. You come back down to sea level. The next time you go up. Is it a better experience? Is it the same? Is it harder, easier? Well, if you go up, if the next time you go up is longer than three to four weeks after your initial time up at altitude, it's going to be basically the same. So what you're saying is, is there has to be a shortened kind of compressed time frame between the first exposure and the second exposure to take advantage of the adaptations that you, that, that you incurred during the first exposure. That's exactly right. And that's both only, not only for red blood cells, but also for the buffering capacity as well. That's you see with acclimatization. And so could you, you could also say the same thing for a live high train low strategy where the competition is at sea level. You want to time the, the removal from the altitude exposure appropriately in that case as well. Oh yes. That's very critical because if you come back, uh, and your events, not for another month, once you return to sea level, you're going to start to lose those adaptations that you gained while you were living at high altitude. Mm. Okay. So the, the athletes that are training for a Leadville Trail 100 that are coming from Florida have some sort of blueprint, right? If they can get up here and do two exposures, that would be okay. Or if they could get up to Leadville within a week or 10 days of the race, that would be efficacious as well. Let's talk a little bit about some of the ways that are more convoluted to, to, to accomplish the same, uh, accomplish the same thing. We already mentioned the use of an altitude tent. What are the, what, if any, are the important differences in using an altitude tent, either the type that you put over your bed or now that they actually have the types that'll actually fit over your head. Have you seen those before? Right. Yeah. yeah I've they seen just those. fit over your head. They're kind of <clears throat> crazy looking, but they work. Um, what are the important differences between that type of altitude exposure and a natural altitude exposure, i.e. actually coming out to Leadville or Colorado Springs or Pikes Peak? Yeah, so uh, the most of the research seems to indicate that whether you have uh, 
normal baric hypoxia, which you're talking about, is when people at sea level use these uh, hyperbaric instruments to try to simulate high altitude, or you actually have hypobaria out at high altitudes. The adaptations appear to be the same, but when it comes to those altitude tents, I have to tell you, I'm not a big fan for a number of reasons. One is they're very expensive. And two, I've had a number of uh, people complain, which is true, that your sleep is very fragmented in those types of situations. So that can affect your training as well, having this disrupted and fragmented sleep. And it's well known that even at altitude, you know, when you go to the actual altitude itself, sleep is disrupted, but it seems to be to a greater extent in these, you're not in your normal bed you're, you're, and you're sleeping in these tents and, or you could be if you had the canopy t- uh, set up, but still your, your, your sleep is disrupted and fragmented and it could affect your training. Yeah. I've always looked at that as a situation where you could get two up, 10 down. Right, you can get a two percent improvement from the tent, but you could easily get a ten ten uh, percent regression in your fitness just by lack of sleep, or they get hurt because they're not uh, uh, because they're not sleeping well, or for whatever reason they require more macronutrients, and you're not covering for that. Like it just becomes, in my opinion, problematic in a lot of cases. Yeah, sleep disruption. You know, we can we could have a three hour podcast on that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have four sleep physiologists here at the University of Colorado that I can consult with, but uh, that induces other chronic stressors that makes training more difficult as well. So I, I agree with you. Two two up, ten down, and again, everyone's going to be different. You can't say this this is going to work for everyone, or this is going to be negative effect for everyone. People just have to try it and find out to see what works and what doesn't work for them. But the important thing is, is if you're going to use a tent, realize that there can be potential big downsides and your upside might be limited. And so if you are compromising primarily sleep, maybe it's not the best idea and your fitness is more important. Yeah. And you obviously, you know, if you're going to spend the money, you better hope it works. (laughs) If you find find out it's not working for you, then... I don't know what the return policy is on those. People say that about coaching all the time. You're spending money on a coach, you better improve. And I I absolutely agree with that statement. Okay, so this leads us to what, in my estimation, is it's kind of presented as the Goldilocks solution to this. And I say presented as very intentionally and deliberately. And this is intermittent hypoxic exposure. So you're supposed to be able to get, you're supposed to be able to get all of the adaptations that we were just talking about, increase in red blood cells, increase in uh, mitochondrial biogenesis and all those other things. And none of the deleterious side effects, your sleep isn't compromised. You don't have to sleep in the tent. You don't have to actually travel up to altitude and all those other things. This is something that the listeners are going to be less familiar with. So we're going to have to paint the kind of the the general protocols first and then go through why or why not this might be a valid solution for athletes. So, so you take it over when we talk about intermittent hypoxic exposure, what does that mean? And can it actually be beneficial for endurance athletes? Yeah. So what's going on here is people are just, they're not training, but they're being exposed intermittently. Uh, it could be the three to four hours a day, several times a week. Uh, and they have to dial in at the, the uh, correct altitude. Uh, generally, it's usually between 7,000 and 10,000 feet they're trying to simulate. 
And the idea here is that just by you're, you're, you're at home, you're at sea level, you're being exposed to this hypoxic uh, environment, and you're going to make these adaptations, which we've already talked about before, as far as, you know, increased red blood cell number, mitochondrial biogenesis, uh, but you're not, you're not training. You're just being exposed to it. So uh, passive exposure. <laughs> you're sitting down, you've got a mask on. And it's you're sitting down, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can be playing video games or whatever you want to do, yeah. Uh, if you look at the literature, the literature is not too positive on the effectiveness of this on improving uh, performance. You know, there's, I'd say of the studies, about 65% say that the intermittent hypoxic exposure is uh, again, if we're talking about trying to improve sea level performance, is not the uh, not the best way to go. The results are equivocal for most of the studies, showing that uh, sometimes there's no change, sometimes there's a little bit of change, but it may not be worth the effort. You're better off just training at sea level. So again, if you're just going on the current literature, I'd have to say that the the intermittent hypoxic exposure is probably the least of the uh, paradigms that are recommended today. But yet a lot of athletes will do it based on this notion of there's no negative, right? right? At least from a training consequence. Yeah. There's negative in terms of time and cost and things like that. But from a, is it going to impact my training? At least that's the thought. There's no negative to which I still say, you're still taking time and resources and maybe there's a recovery impact. If you're just sitting there at 10,000 feet or whatever, you have the thing set up, maybe there's a recovery impact for that. I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts along that aspect of there might be no negative associated with it. Yeah. I don't think there's any really important, significant negative consequences of the intermittent hypoxic exposure unless you have to happen to be extra sensitive to hypoxia, which you shouldn't be doing this anyway. Um, but, you know, there's lots of things out there that are considered ergogenic aids that don't have any negative impact. You know, you could take all these various supplements from beetroot or whatever, and, you know, you're just wasting time and resources. But I don't want to get into those right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have a whole podcast on things that have no negative associated with them <laughs> yeah, that you really. could waste time on. No, seriously, I'm going to have somebody on. We're going to go through the whole thing. It might take it might be like three, three hour specials or something like that. <laughs> By the time we go through the list, list that we have is already several pages long. Let's, let me just put it that way. That's a good tease for everybody listening. Um, okay. So you, you've been doing this. I'm not trying to out your age, Robert, but you've been doing this for a while. You've been studying physiology at altitude for a while, longer than a lot of people have been running that are listening to this to, to yeah, I'm podcast. sure that's the case. Yes. I've been at CU for 35 years. So that just gives you a, a reference. Unbelievable. And I always appreciate, I always appreciate uh, people who have been at this for a long time, their perspective, because they've seen the way that, that philosophy and thought process and the research has changed over years. What do you want to come out of this? Like, what do you think the future holds for looking at this area of, high altitude physiology and performance. What are the things that we don't know that you want to know going forward? Yeah. So originally I got into this cause I was interested in uh, some more serious consequences. We've done studies on people that were uh, subjected to high altitude pulmonary edema, high altitude cerebral edema. And so we were interested in the under underlying physiological mechanisms there, but you know, I've been in the field of exercise physiology for a long time. So I've always 
usually used that in addition to the altitude as the stressors that I was talking about. So basically, you know, we still have a lot to learn. And if we're going to focus just specifically on performance and not just basic high altitude physiology adaptations, um, I think the, the big question out there right now is the exposure to altitude. We know that the increase in red blood cell number plays a role in improving performance, especially when you go back down to sea level, because we know blood doping works. We know EPO injections work. Um, but it seems that there are many other factors that we're not aware of that can contribute to the improvements in performance and the acclimatization process. And this can range from exercise economy. It can, it could have to do with the buffering capacity, which uh, still is a little bit hazy. Um, it could do with another adaptations with mitochondrial adaptations that occur free radical or oxidative stress. So there's a number of other factors out there that we really don't know to what extent they contribute to the adaptation process, both at altitude and to the potential improvements with performance as well. And is your lab going to try to answer some of those questions coming up? Or are you going to rely on the military here at Pikes Peak with their new <laughs> facility that they were just building that we we're talking about earlier? Well, funny she should say that because next week I'm retiring. Oh. So I'm, so I've shut down my lab. <laughs> well, you know, 35 years is long enough, uh, Coop. But are you gonna are you gonna hang on like uh, uh, like your colleague Roger Crom has and have like little you know little fingers in the, in the pies of the CU physiology world? <laughs> Come on now. You know, I might hang on like uh, he has, but it won't be in the area of altitude physiology because logistically it's not that uh, feasible to to do unless you're actually going to these large studies at the summit of Pikes Peak. Yeah. Well, I, I do hope that I do hope that 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 the work up there does continue. It's been uh it's been a really bright spot on the research because we've learned so much from it and I know it's something that's really near and dear to you to your heart. Congratulations on your retirement. I did not know that before we got on the before we got on the horn today. I'm kind of honored that this is like one of the last things that you're going to do before you this sail off. This is like my swan's my swan song here. I love it. I love it. I feel like you're going to sail off into the distance and go fly fishing at a high altitude high altitude <laughs> lake or something like that for the rest of your life. Uh, all right. Thank you for your time. Um, I'm going to put uh, links in the show notes to all the research uh, that you mentioned, as well as uh, the class that we we're talking about before we got on the air today. Um, I can't, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate people like you and your contributions to what we know about performance and altitude and exercise physiology. So thank you for that globally. And also thank you for coming on the podcast today. Well, thanks Coop. I always enjoy talking about this as you well know. And there you have it. There you go. Appreciate the heck out of Robert for coming on the podcast today. That was really fun. It is one of my favorite areas to discuss. And I got to be honest, I am honored and humbled that we could get Robert on the podcast today just before his retirement. Robert, you leave behind an incredibly distinguished career and one that is filled with influence 
that we can draw upon specifically in altitude and with exercise physiology. We as a collective community of athletes and coaches cannot thank you enough for that. Hope the listeners, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. The links to Robert's course are in the show notes. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.